Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of the Gills Talk podcast. Today, we have Gills Club scientist, Dr. Cindy Trebizio. She is a research fishery biologist with NOAA Fishery Science Center in Juneau, Alaska. Cindy and I cover a bunch of topics throughout this interview. You're going to learn about the spiny dogfish, the Pacific sleeper shark, learn about fisheries observer programming, learn about the electronic monitoring program, what these research projects are learning, and a little bit of her advice sprinkled in at the end as well. So sit back and enjoy our interview today with Dr. Cindy Trebizio. Welcome everyone to another Gills Talk podcast interview. Today we have Gills Club scientist, Dr. Cindy Trebizio. So welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So all the way from Alaska. So you might right now have the record for longest range interview (laughs) (laughs) or the podcast. Um, So thank you so much for taking your time out of your day. And especially with the crazy time change um, from here, from the East coast of the U S to Alaska, (laughs) to be able to nail, nail this down so we can learn more about your work. Yeah, I'm excited. Let's do this. (laughs) So then, yeah, let's get started. So if you just want to explain um, what your work is and what your current role is and what you do right now. So I work for the National Marine Fisheries Service, and my my main job is stock assessment of uh, data-limited species. And as part of that, I get to do the shark assessments for all Alaskan waters, or I should say all federal uh, fisheries in Alaskan waters. And we have three primary species, the spiny dogfish, Pacific sleeper shark and salmon shark. And there's other exciting species that dabble around the edges, but um, we call those other sharks in our assessments. So we really assess the three primary species. And then as part of that, I get to do some cool research. Um, I've done some tagging stuff. We're finishing up some genetics stuff and we're doing some uh, other cool research projects that I could spend way too much time talking about. (laughs) Well, then is there a research project that pops into your mind that you're like, oh, this is something that I've really enjoyed doing so far that maybe you want to expand on. Well, we've done some amazing tagging stuff on spiny dogfish, actually. And uh, unfortunately, I haven't had a lot of time to analyze all the data, but the fact that we've put out 170 pop-off satellite tags on small sharks is pretty fantastic. And we have uh, used this, a a collaborator has used those data to develop a neat hidden Markov movement model and the papers publishing on that. Um, But it's a really awesome model for uh, figuring out where fish are going and predicting their um, habitat uses and such. So we have this giant library of data that we still have to actually process, but it's super exciting. Um, And I'm really, really excited to use that. And we can tie that into stock assessment by just saying um, simply like, how much do dogfish spend their time in Alaska? Or do they go to Canada? Do they go to California? which some of them do, actually. We've had some go to Russia and California. Russia, wow, what a trek. Yeah, Yeah, we've had some hop to the other side of the ocean. We had one that in less than nine months went from Dutch Harbor, which is way over on the other side of Alaska, all the way down to California. And it went all the way across the ocean, like over the the abyss. It didn't go along the coast. So that was some pretty exciting um, results, early results from that. And we've got um, a project that we're kicking off right now that I think is really exciting. Um, so a lot of our fisheries are starting to use uh, what's called electronic monitoring, which is where there's video cameras recording the catch on the vessels. And uh, 
they use that instead of having a human out there trying to record uh, catch and biological data. And we're, we've got a project that's exploring how well electronic monitoring systems can detect large sharks because large sharks tend to fall off the line easily mm -hmm. before they're brought on board or they're not brought on board at all. And so we've got this really great project that's looking at that and developing these uh, artificial intelligent tools to do that. And it's very technical, but it's very exciting and it's beyond, I'm not the technical person, but it's really fun to be involved in that project and see the cool tools that they're developing. Getting back into what you were just saying about the artificial intelligence side mm -hmm. of things with video, what is considered a large shark? We're calling, in this case, we're calling anything that's not spiny dogfish a large shark. So um, anything that is a species that is generally greater than four feet or one and a half meters in length. Um, we have historically used the six foot cutoff for uh, fisheries because that's an easy one for uh, the on-deck crew to just gauge a six foot size, but we found it was easier to just go by species. So for when we say large sharks, we mean the non-spiny dogfish. Mm -hmm. Can you get into more a little bit about um, the spiny dogfish and maybe why fishermen in Alaska are harvesting this species? Because I know we have a spiny dogfish fishery here where we are located off of Cape Cod. So just see if there's similarities or differences between the two. There's a lot of similarities and a lot of differences. Um, they are technically different species. That was 2010, I think they were redefined as separate species. Um, in our zone, they, they're not directly harvested. In fact, I think they're like 95% discarded. Oh, wow. Um, these are not a desirable species to catch up here. Uh, they're avoided and they're kind of very unpopular. This is because they, well, first off, we have things like halibut and salmon, and we've got all these other high value species where dogfish just don't have much of a market value, but also the processing. Um, the plants have to work totally different way to process dogfish. So it's a much bigger, it's a bigger process to get the meat handled and get it shipped out. Now there used to be fishery, directed fisheries in Canada and Washington state. And there have been attempts at fisheries here in Alaska. Um, they've all been short-lived or um, short-term. This recently, I wanna say the mid 2000 teens, I think was the last time there was a directed fishery in British Columbia. There just wasn't enough market demand. And I haven't, I haven't followed that much. Interesting. I think that's so interesting to hear the differences between the East and the West coast. We're like here off of chat and we're bringing it almost like it's a, I think the stock is like 1.1 million pounds a year or something like that. It's right. an insane number <laughs> of spiny right. dogfish and how then what the processing is here for that then versus it's the complete almost opposite. Right. Over yeah, there. and I think it's partly because we're just so far away. Mm -hmm. And again, we have pollock, halibut, salmon, these super high value fisheries that are uh, not limited like, you know, Atlantic cod. So, um, you know, P our Pacific cod is, uh, is currently uh, limited right now, but for the most part, we've got all these high value fisheries that are still doing okay. And so we haven't reached out to the dogfish yet. It's not impossible that it could happen in the future. There could be a shift and you know, the dogfish population, uh, we, we do assess it. We, it's a data limited assessment. So we don't have as much data to go into it as you do on the East Coast stocks. So it's not as uh, well-informed. And so it's a little harder to track population trends on that, that species. That said, if it were to become a 
a directed species or a desirable species where they were starting to retain it and market it, we'd probably start getting increased data flows and be able to develop a more complicated uh, nuanced assessment to track populations better. So interesting. And that's something I think with fishery science is for me, an interesting topic and learning about stock, stock assessments and the statistics behind it and doing all, it's almost a constant study that you have to be doing then to, you know, to be able then to assess the stock each year for fishermen. And that's something that I wish that I like really learned more about in like my academic years. So do I. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's very interesting, but you also mentioned that you do work with the sleeper shark as well. And that is a species here on the podcast that we have not touched on at all. So I would love any information that you can tell us about the sleeper shark, what research that you are working on. Oh right my goodness. The big mystery. Uh, sleeper shark is one of the most difficult sharks for us to study. And um, this is because it is large and Historically, all the records we have from research surveys where we have the best access to any species are rare and small. So we're getting, you're seeing small sleeper sharks, which a small sleeper shark is one and a half to two meters or you know six-ish feet, somewhere in that range. Not that small. <laughs> right, to put it in perspective. Mm -hmm. And we don't really get a lot of fishery data for these uh, because they are not a high priority species for our at-sea observers. You know, our at-sea observers have a lot of work they do out there when they're on deck um, in all weathers and all conditions. So it's understandable that this non-targeted, unimportant species just isn't a high priority for their data collections. Um, and we've been doing a couple projects, special projects with observers recently. So we are starting to get a better idea of what's out there and thinking about reformulating how observers collect data on these species. The most amazing thing is that we don't see adults. They have to exist somewhere because there's baby sharks, <laughs> but we don't see the adults. And that's just not in our research surveys. They may be getting caught in fishery data or in fisheries, but we don't see it in the data. And so that said, because of one of these projects, I've been having observers collect, um, I've actually have them collecting eyeballs so we can do the aging thing on them. And I just got a data form yesterday of somebody collected eyes from a 4.6 meter sleeper shark, wow. which we're like, oh, an adult exists, <laughs> which they have to somewhere, mm -hmm. but we just, we don't see them. So with the Pacific sleeper shark, we theorize a lot because we just don't know. And all the tagging data is on juveniles because mm -hmm. that's what we can get access to. And there's been some tagging work from the early 2000s. A couple studies came out and just showing that sleeper sharks are opportunistic feeders. They, they might hunt mammals, seals and stuff, but they also might just eat whatever lands in front of them too. They can move a lot. They might not, they might have hang out. We had one tag recovery, I think it was eight years later, less than one kilometer from where it was tagged in Southeast Alaska. So where it went in between that time, who knows? Maybe it stayed around, but maybe it left and came back. Most of the tagging stuff that has been done are more short-term, like one-year tag deployments. So you're just getting a snippet of what this young animal is doing. Mm -hmm. And there's some studies and folks from the Alaska Sea Life Center are working out of uh, Prince William Sound or Resurrection Bay in Prince William Sound doing some tagging. And they're collaborating with myself and University of Alaska Fairbanks has a PhD student working on it right now. 
Um, so there's there's expanding tagging technology that is expanding what we can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, other things going on, like I mentioned, we've got the, the electronic monitoring project and we're trying to collect samples and get funded to do an aging study, uh, similar to the Greenland shark study that got everybody excited about five years ago. <laughs> Um, which is pretty amazing stuff. And we have done some early uh, tests on those suggesting that, you know, a 55 year old animal is not mature yet. You know, that's not a lot and it's not conclusive, but it's just pilot work showing that, yeah, we can detect this bomb carbon in the islands. We've got proposals out to try to fund that study. We have a rock star crew on that one. I'm really excited about that project. I just have to get it funded. So there's, it's a big mystery fish. It's hard to assess because this is severely data limited and we don't, we have accuracy problems in the catch data even because they're so big. They're so hard to measure. Most of the catch comes from a long line fishery where they fall off the line. And the only thing that's brought on board are smaller ones. And that's what the observers have access to to weigh. So the weight that goes into the catch estimates is actually small compared to the size of the fish that are being caught. So these are all problems or tasks that we're working on trying to improve our shark assessments. There's a lot we can do and a lot we got to figure out how to do. And sleeper sharks are a great one. And I enjoy it because it's, there's so much we can do, especially in data limit stock assessment. There's all these new methods for using what little data you have to try to estimate sustainable harvest and or sustainable catch. Um, harvest is the common term, even though ours is not harvested, it's just caught. Mm-hmm. So I would assume then that's definitely probably one of the biggest challenges that you face during then this type of work, because you're depending on those that catch data. And then you're also dealing with the smaller ones and not the larger ones as well. And I guess there's really no method because you don't know much about them to know like, oh, this is one way you can go and catch a large or an adult sleeper shark. Right, yeah, and that's like another aspect of this uh, electronic monitoring project, which is a lot bigger project than I realized it was. (laughs) But we have observers collecting more length data than they used to as part of special projects. So we're actually trying to figure out if we can improve how these data streams are collected so that we can start getting more accurate size data from at sea observers to get more accurate catch. That's our primary source of data. So we're trying to figure out how we can improve the accuracy of the catch. And from there, it's what what data limited tools can we try? We just don't have much biology. Mm -hmm. We don't even have, we don't even have things like fecundity or how many offspring they have. So we don't know where uh, a critical habitat are. You know, I have theories that the Bering Sea is a nursery area because that area, you consistently catch very small sleeper sharks, Mm -hmm. but that was before getting more fishery data. So the adults have to be somewhere still. (laughs) So is it possible the entire Bering Sea is a nursery zone and the the entire Pacific Ocean is adult habitat? Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> we don't really have anything to support that. It's just a theory. So hard to tell. And I think that's, it's definitely a theme of this podcast. If it's with sleeper sharks or if it's with white sharks or with hammerheads or tiger sharks, whatever the scientists that we're talking to each week is studying that so many people assume that they're not in science that, oh, we know so much. 
well, just listening to you, we don't. <laughs> we don't. And that's what's exciting. Yes. And that, but that's why we get into science is because we don't know stuff and we want to know stuff. We want to know more stuff. And you, know, you find that thing that you can't get the answer to the question. You ask more questions and you keep trying to learn that stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's the one thing we can do with sleeper sharks is get genetic samples because you can you can easily get a tissue plug from fish. And we were lucky enough to get samples from California up through the Bering Sea. And this is, we collaborated with the International Pacific Halibut Commission survey and fisheries and a bunch of places to get uh, tissue samples. And they're wrapping up a genetic study right now where the paper should hopefully be coming out this winter. But basically they found that there's zero genetic population structure in the entire North Pacific for this species, Whoa. <laughs> which is super unexciting for geneticists. But for me, I was like, that's awesome. There's like, there is no structure. So they're all related <laughs> in the limited samples. I'm also suggesting that the Southern ocean, uh, uh, Somniosus antarcticus might actually be the same species as Somniosus pacificus. So you know, genetics is one tool that's developing in areas and redefining a lot of stuff. And so that's like the one question we've been able to answer on sleeper sharks is like, they're all the same genetically. There's nothing exciting going on up here. That is just so intriguing. And I think like, as, as you've been mentioning, there's a lot of collaborations and, Mm -hmm. and collaborators that help get this work done. And someone that might be listening that isn't familiar with the observer program. I've actually had a few friends from college that have become observers throughout the country and in other areas, but can you explain Mm -hmm. what, what that program is? So people have a better idea. I mean, everything we do is super collaborative. Um, This is, we have networks of people working on everything from the initial steps of data collection all the way up to the publications. And this is a very team oriented environment. I love that. Mm-hmm. Um, Alaska, at least sharks in Alaska are very team oriented and skates. Of course, we can't forget the flat sharks, yeah. the observer program. So observers are people hired by uh, the fisheries managers to go out and record biological data and catch data on the fishing boats and you know, how they're deployed and what they do depends on which region of the country they're in. Cause we all do our uh, fisheries manage fish. All fisheries are different. There's no one size fits all box. So in Alaska, the observers go out on trawl boats, pot boats, jig boats, long line boats, and they record different types of data depending on which kind of boat they're on and what they're fishing for. And some observers are just in the plants too. So there's uh, boats that aren't big enough to carry observers or are exempted for whatever reasons. And sometimes their catch is sampled when it gets offloaded at the port or the, the processing plant. So observers are folks that are contracted to record catch data or take biological samples and do special projects like the ones I've been talking about for sleeper sharks. So they, they, every year we can apply to have some special projects done. And those can be really interesting, like play with sharks more, take data, play with sharks. And, you know, people like to do that. And, you know, these folks are the frontline data collectors for fishery data. They collect uh, otoliths, which are the ear bones, mm-hmm. and used for aging. That is the key chunk of information in a lot of stock assessments, uh, you know, the more data-rich stock assessments. So, yeah, they are definitely our frontline data collectors uh, who 
deserve major kudos because they're the ones out on the boats in all weather, <laughs> which is not what I want to do. Um, so I always give a big shout out to the observers because they do a lot of really important work for us and they're tough. You know, I heard enough stories of being airlifted by helicopter from tiny ports up in the middle of the middle of the Aleutians, like these crazy stories, what these folks do. And, you know, I think they like it, some of them, but, you know, it's, it's pretty amazing what observers do. Mm-hmm. And it like it's, it's like you said, like having them is key for research, mm-hmm. um, and not just for sharks, but for many species that people might might be lo- looking for if it's right. an animal or a plant or anything like right. that. So pretty cool stuff. But I kind of want to switch gears a little bit, kind of. But I know you said that you know you're working with spiny dogfish, working with sleeper sharks. But I'm sure then during these trawls or long lines, or then you might get feedback from then observers saw like. Mm-hmm. X species of shark. Has there ever been one that you were just like flabbergasted by or surprised that like that this was came up? You know, sadly, not really. And um, we just don't actually, I take that back. Okay. That is totally wrong. A few years ago, we had a basking shark way up north in the Bering Sea. And we we're all like, that's gotta be an error. And then we got pictures from the observer and we we're like, there was a giant basking shark in the Bering Sea what is going on here? And, you know, that was just like mind blowing because what is it doing up there? They, you know, how did it get there? Uh, We have zero records of them anywhere in Alaska, except in the Bering Sea. (laughs) So, I mean, we know that for that species, it's actually a surprisingly rare species because it was kind of, we'll just say hunted Mm -hmm. a long time during the forties and stuff. So, and it's been a challenging recovery for them. Mm-hmm. but you're starting to see more reports of them down in British Columbia and Washington, uh, which is, they're kind of more of a temperate, not Arctic species. So we're all just like, what, what are you doing up there? It, with electronic monitoring though, we started to see a few new species in some fisheries because with the electronic monitoring, whoever's doing the video review can stop the video mm-hmm. and confirm a species ID, which is a lot harder for an observer on a boat where the fish is just flopping in and out and it's, you know, you see it and it's gone. Mm-hmm. You just don't have a lot of time to uh, do a species ID. Sometimes we, we did get a record of a soup fin shark oh. off the, in Southeast Alaska, which is the first time we'd seen that. So that was new, but yeah, I'd say the basking shark was probably the most exciting for sure. And now that we're starting to get some size data from sleeper sharks, we're kind of getting our minds blown with that one too, because usually it's like, Oh, here's all your one meter long sharks or less, you know, more like a 70, even 60 centimeter sleeper sharks. We were getting lots of those little guys, mm-hmm. but suddenly, you know, like every once in a while, there's this 4.6 meter shark. And we're like, oh, whoa, <laughs> that happened. <laughs> so there have been definitely some exciting things. Mm-hmm. Are there other sharks? So I know you with the spiny dogfish and the sleeper, mm-hmm. and then that basking shark and, and the soup fin, but what are like other species that will occasionally be brought up? Blue sharks are rare, but not super rare. Okay. Um, they tend to show up in later in the summer when the waters get a little warmer, sometimes in our longline fisheries, but they actually show up more in state uh, salmon, state managed salmon troll fisheries. <clears throat> they tend to harass the trollers a lot more and salmon sharks do too. Um, salmon sharks we do get, we manage in the federal fisheries. So, so salmon sharks also get caught. Um, they like to follow the Pollock schools. Interesting. And, 
so they get caught um, a lot by the pollock fisheries as well as the state managed salmon fisheries too. Strangely, a few years ago, they were doing some research on surface trawling in Southeast Alaska and started getting thresher sharks. We had no record of that before. So that one's kind of an interesting one. There have been the occasional great whites showing up, but we don't have a lot of direct sightings of them, but you have pretty clear indirect evidence. There's a great picture from Yakutat. Um, I want to say like 2008 or 2009, but there was a guy charter fishing on a halibut fishing and they, he got his halibut back, but it had a good two foot bite mark out of it. So it's way too big to be a sleeper shark. And it was really raggedy. Uh, I mean, it was clearly a great white shark. And there's this great picture of him holding up this giant halibut that has it's missing all of it because it's got this giant shark bite out I of it. I remember that because it, it went pretty viral. It did. It went. It was in the early ages of things going viral. <laughs> and uh, there's there's some thought that maybe they're getting up into the Bering Sea because of some bite wounds that have been found on seals and such. Hmm. Again, that's indirect um, and inconclusive, but it seems reasonable, especially in warm years. So we get those. Um, we get brown cat sharks. Um, which are just, you know, little sh small deep water species. They can get caught in trawl fisheries, but not very often. Oh, six gills and seven gills. Those are my favorites. They're so pretty. And um, they will show up in longline fisheries, in particular in Southeast. But ironically, we have had seven gills reported in Southeast Alaska, but also in Prince William Sound now, but not, those are not in federal fisheries. It's just people send me reports. And so I was able to verify the species based on pictures, mm -hmm. but the, and some, we get some six gills in um, spread around. We had some in the Aleutians a few years ago. So that's so cool. I'm sorry. I'm just like, trying to soak this off. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm trying to remember, I'm like, what else have I seen in the data? But I think that's pretty much it. Mm -hmm. So then when you like stepping back and looking at the big picture with this data, then how does that contribute to the big picture for fisheries and things like that? If that makes Well, sense. because these are not directed and they're actually actively avoided, we estimate in what we call an acceptable biological catch okay. for every assessment. So we estimate how many biologically uh, fisheries can catch and essentially remove because we do assume 100% mortality for everything that was caught. Mm -hmm. The reality is, is in some cases, it's not going to be that high. So we're being conservative on that. That number is used to manage fisheries. We accept the acceptable biological catch. And then beyond that, we have what's called an overfishing level. So we have these two numbers. One is um, the overfishing level is a hard limit and the acceptable biological catch is your target. You don't want to exceed the target. And then the OFL is like the backstop. And if a fishery, or if we get close to the acceptable biological catch, the ABC in any year, that puts them into a prohibited retention status, which actually sharks already are. So it doesn't really change anything for sharks. And so it, it doesn't necessarily impact a fish or another a high value fishery, for example, until they get close to that overfishing limit because these are not directed and there's, they're all discarded and nobody actually wants them. We're nowhere near the ABC even for these species. Um, they're managed as a complex which means that we estimate an ABC for each of the species in the complex, and then we sum it up okay. to have this grander uh, value to manage to. And because spiny dogfish is a little more data rich and they 
are more productive species, ironically, because uh, they really aren't that productive of a species, mm -hmm. their ABC is high enough that for the shark complex, we actually have a very, relatively high ABC in the Gulf of Alaska and catch is well, well below that for all, all the species combined. In the Bering Sea, it's a little more challenging because in the Bering Sea, sleeper shark and salmon shark are our primary species. And that's all based on catch history, which is, as I mentioned before, not the best, most accurate data. It, it's not very, the, the numbers are not big. Mm -hmm. So that's more of a, it can limit fisheries. They have never hit the overfishing limit for those. In fact, they haven't hit the ABC but they do come close occasionally um, to catching close to the ABC, but there's enough of a buffer between the ABC and the OFL that they've never even come close to what we set as the overfishing limit. And so therefore it doesn't really impact high value fisheries. That's a lot of rambling. No, no, but I think like you, that makes sense though, for what you're saying. I think it's, it's definitely, it's, it's, it's a question that requires a long answer. <laughs> right. I mean, I think if I was trying to simplify it, I would say, we track trends and catch and when possible biomass like we do for spiny dogfish to keep an eye on them and keep an eye out for warning flags for uh, potential conservation concerns and stuff like that. But the harvest specifications don't necessarily uh, limit other fisheries at this point. They can, it's there for that purpose, but they don't catch enough to limit other fisheries yet. Awesome. Well, thank you for answering that. <laughs> so is there any advice that you would give to your younger self um, coming into this field? Ooh, advice to my younger self. Um, open my mind to math more. Mm -hmm. Take more math classes. Uh, when I was in college, I was like, ecologists, they don't need math. I'm going to be a field ecologist forever, which I'm clearly not anymore. And I'm doing a lot more quantitative stuff, more, more modeling and coding. Mm -hmm. all these things I never would have thought I would like doing if I would open my mind to that too many years ago when I was in college uh, even in as I started my graduate degree mm -hmm. um, I think I would be better skilled for what I'm doing now as it is I'm learning a lot now and you know we're in a field where you never stop learning and that's great mm -hmm. but I think it would have been if I would have opened my mind to uh, other skill sets in my younger years it probably would have helped today and the other thing would just be, again, it's most, mostly about being open-minded. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was in college and even as a child, I was like, I'm going to save the whales. Whales are the best. It's all I'm interested in is saving the whales. I don't do anything with whales. <laughs> and I'm glad for that. I'm really glad for that. Um, it wasn't until I started volunteering at the Seattle Aquarium that I started thinking, oh, there's other cool stuff. Mm -hmm. And I started diving with the Seattle Aquarium. And we got involved in their six skill research program. And that's how I started doing shark stuff. And that's what got me into graduate school was, you know, starting diving and doing the six skill research project. If I just would have opened my mind and gotten away from whales sooner, I could have played with sharks a lot earlier. Like, <laughs> come on, that's cool. Yes. Uh, I, I think my biggest advice would be to not, not put yourself in a box, mm -hmm. you know, and to also to follow your skills. I mean, we all have, I mean, we're obviously talking about sharks because we all wanted to do with sharks because it's just awesome. Yes. No denying that. And saying, I want to work on sharks because they're awesome. Totally cool. But there's a lot of people who want to do that because it's awesome. But if you have a skill set, you can turn that into shark work. Mm -hmm. If you are really good at genetics or really good at math or really good at 
coding or any of these things, you can use those skills to get you into the field working with sharks. Whereas there aren't a lot of jobs for people to say, hey, I'm a shark person. You can't apply for a job as a shark person. You have to apply for a job as a skilled person who does shark stuff. Mm -hmm. So I would say follow your skills as much as following your heart. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think it, that's a really good tie-in to what we we're talking about earlier, that there's so much stuff we don't know. And mm -hmm. having that skill is just going to help and contribute to, you know, the, we don't know much of the genetics of the sleeper shark as we were just learning right. about, you know, things right. like that. So it's just going to help them further along with whatever species, or really, yeah. if it's not sharks, if it is bony fish or whales, who knows, whatever, yeah. <laughs> it's going to tie that in. So I want to say thank you so much for being able to share more of your knowledge and share more of what you're doing all the way over in, in Alaska. So thank you. Well, thanks for inviting me. This is fun. Absolutely. Thank you. If you'd like to keep up with the work that Cindy is doing and as well as other work that NOAA Fisheries Alaska is doing, you can follow them across their social media pages. So you can search NOAA Fisheries AK and it'll pop up on your Twitter, Instagram, and as well as Facebook to learn more and to follow along with the research being done off of the Alaskan coastline. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Gills Talk podcast. Please remember to rate, subscribe, and review. And as always, remember to stay curious, stay inspired, and always learn. And we'll catch you on the next episode. Bye, everyone.